just a quick message from me, Rebecca Adil, and I will be quick, I promise. Just a few things I want to say. I'm really excited to share the new series, series two of Killing Time. There's loads of exciting episodes in store and I just know you're going to love it. Secondly, the reviews have been brilliant. Thank you so much for that. If you haven't done it yet, a five star review would be much appreciated. And finally, 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 if you would like to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon account, which I bang on about all the time. <laughs> Don't feel pressured, but it would be wonderful. You can find us on www.patreon.com forward slash killing underscore time. <sighs> and breathe. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Killing Time, the podcast that investigates the darkest moments of our past to shine a light on wider histories. I'm Rebecca Adil and I'll be your guide. Sit back, relax and listen as we delve into the latest episode, Protestant Martyrs. It is the 12th of February 1554 and we're at the Tower of London where a 16-year-old girl is being led out to Tower Green to be executed for treason. She is Lady Jane Grey and for a few fleeting days she has been Queen of England. She makes a short speech and is beheaded. Fast forward nearly a century and we're outside the banqueting house of Whitehall Palace, London. It is the 30th of January 1649 and a 48-year-old man is led out to a public scaffold where he is also to be beheaded for treason. He is King Charles I and at 2pm when the executioner swings his axe, the king is no more. the worlds in which Lady Jane Grey and King Charles I existed were very different, as were the lives that they led. Yet, as Protestant monarchs who were executed for treason, they share a unique bond. To explore their stories, I'm joined by historian and author of The Sisters Who Would Be Queen and The White King, Leander Delisle. Leander Delisle, thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. You are the font of all knowledge when it comes to Charles I, but actually, it's not just him, is it? You've, you've got Lady Jane Grey in your back pocket as well, and I just think we're going to attempt to explore both of their deaths during this episode, and I think there's a lot to get through, and we're going to be going back and forth in time, but hopefully we can achieve it. <laughs> yes, because I think they make... Uh, I don't think people often pair them together, but they're both... Protestant martyrs of very different kinds. They were both monarchs of very different kinds. And they have some interesting points of contact. I, you, you are right. And the more I've been thinking about it, there are lots of things that we can, we can compare and contrast between the two. So I just thought it might be useful to, first of all, have a little bit of an overview of the worlds in which these two figures existed. Could you tell me a little bit about where they lived, who they were and what the worlds were like that they were living in? Yes, of course. First of all, excuse me if I get the dates wrong, because obviously Jane was the 16th century, so the 1500s, and Charles in the 17th century, so the 1600s, and uh, I'll probably get my sort of you know, centuries mixed up, flicking from one to the other. <laughs> so Jane was born really in the immediate aftermath to the uh, Reformation, 
And when she became queen, England was not really yet a Protestant country. In fact, there'd been a rebellion against the first Protestant prayer book just a few years before she became queen. Whereas when Charles became king in 1625, England was very much a Protestant country. So that's one sort of point of sort of contrast. She was a cousin of Elizabeth I and uh, Mary I, the Tudor queens. She was 16 in 1553 when she was named queen by her cousin, Edward VI, the half-brother of Mary and Elizabeth Tudor. And she was a sort of brilliant young girl, highly educated, very much a sort of person of her age in that way. This was this was a time when sort of noble women were being well educated and education in women was, was valued for a brief period in English history. Uh, and she was a beneficiary of, of that. Uh, and she was also uh, the first generation really to have been raised as, as a Protestant. Which is, which is different then to to Charles, because as you say, it was more, it was an established religion by the time that he was king in the 17th century. And the world was was very different, wasn't it? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And this had a, you know, an important impact uh, on both their reigns and indeed on their different, well, <laughs> their similar but different fates in that they both sadly ended up with their heads being chopped off. They did. And it, it's interesting to me how Obviously, there's a question mark over Lady Jane Grey as to whether she can officially be counted as a queen. I would say yes. I don't know what your your view would be on that matter. Yes, she was proclaimed queen. I think she was a queen. So these are two heads of state. These are two monarchs, but they find themselves executed. How did the tide turn against each of them? Well, the tide, as in popular support, was never really in Jane's favour. But she was supported by the political elite, the sort of privy council around Edward VI. When Edward VI became king, he was only sort of nine years old. But the men around him were, would certainly become termed as Protestants, and they were a particular kind of Protestant. They belonged to what was known as Reform Protestantism, which is what we now might call Calvinism, which is a kind of stripped down form of Protestantism. And they were very concerned when Edward VI was dying, when he was 15 years old, uh, that his heir was his Catholic half-sister, Mary Tudor, and were anxious that uh, she not become a queen, as indeed was Edward himself. And so he named his cousin, Jane, who was a Reformed Protestant like himself, as queen. And she had the support of the Privy Council and of the sort of you know, leading political figures of the day. And they assumed it would all be fine because her rival was, after all, in the words of one of them, only a woman, as in Mary. And (laughs) even Mary's most powerful supporters believed that, you know, she didn't stand the chance that essentially all the military forces in the realm, all the political power was in the hands of uh, Jane's supporters. But there were two reasons, I suppose, the tides, so to speak, turned against Jane One was the figure of Mary herself, who was very remarkable and was determined to make a stand. And the second was the really the ordinary people of England who were shocked that Jane had been proclaimed queen rather than Mary, who had been Edward's heir for the previous 10 years. As I said, this was not yet a fully Protestant country. And so they weren't as bothered as members of the political elite that Mary wasn't a Protestant. And it seemed to them to be 
an illegal act. And I think the key thing here was that when Edward died, he was only 15 and he had intended to call a parliament that would have confirmed his choice of Jane as his heir. But he died before parliament could assemble. And so there was nothing in statute that said Jane could be his heir or was his heir. And in fact, Mary Tudor was his heir in English statute. Because you have there's this uh, the incredible document where he's written his note where he pro- proclaims that Jane would be his heir and there's a section that's scribbled out kind of at the 11th hour to include her directly into the mix of the succession. So if you compare that, as you say, to everything that was in the statute, it's a, a flimsy piece of paper, but it also feels like a flimsy succession as well in a way yes no it is you're right it is an interesting document it's a great document to see with its sort of crossings out because what he wanted was to have a male heir so originally he 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 sort of left it to her as male but he then realized that she wasn't you know there wasn't time for her to to have to get pregnant and although he had her married off and indeed he had all the sort of female heirs to the throne that he could find married off while he was dying there wasn't time for any of them to actually get pregnant and have a baby before he died I want to turn to the situation with Charles I over a hundred years later. I ask Leander how his problems began and whether it can simply be explained as a breakdown in communication and trust between the executive and Parliament. Well, I think, yes, in short, it was about a sort of, I suppose, a battle between where exactly the balance of power should lie between a king and parliament. And therefore, there's the the same power of parliament as an important, crucial part of Charles's story as it is about Jane's. And religion also played an important part and these two things work together. And what is interesting here is that, as I said, you have these two people, both of whom were to be described as Protestant martyrs, but they are very different kinds of Protestant. Jane was a reformed Protestant, believed in this stripped down form of Protestantism, which we describe as Calvinism. This was the sort of theological underpinnings of the Church of England. But the Church of England had never become sort of fully Calvinist, partly because Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor, was very conservative in her her religious beliefs. It had, you might say, some sort of Catholic hangovers, of which perhaps an episcopate, that is government by bishops, was the most important. Charles preferred what we would think of as a more high church form of Protestantism, a more sort of florid, ceremonial, ritualistic form of Protestantism, which wasn't really Calvinism. And this Reformed Protestants, Calvinist Protestants, found extremely disturbing and frightening, and they described it as popish and were terrified that he was going to overthrow the Reformation, basically. I'm keen to find out whether being a second son had an impact on Charles's education. Now, you know, he was very well educated. I think he was only 11 when his brother died. Not uncommon in English history for second sons to become king. Henry VIII was a second son. And I think he was 10 when his brother died, um, from memory. So, no, Charles I was highly educated. His father was extremely interested, you know, was himself extremely well educated. And he oversaw Charles's religious education in particular. So Charles was particularly well educated in matters to do with theology. But he was generally a highly educated man. I'm sure that he and Jane would have had some very interesting arguments together. There are very clear differences in the circumstances at the point of their death. Jane was a woman and a teenager at that, who'd only been queen for a matter of days. Charles was a man in his 40s who'd been king for over two decades. How much of a role, so to speak, did they have in their own demise? 
I think they were both actors in their demise. I mean, Charles much more so. I mean, he was a middle-aged man when he died, when he was executed and had been king for a, you know, a long time. You know, he was executed in 1649. He'd become king in 1625. Jane was queen for nine days after she was proclaimed in London, 13 days after Edward VI died. And she was, you know, 16 when she died. But she was much more than a pawn, actually. She had agency and she certainly played a role in her own fate. And very specifically so. And this is, again, another interesting point of difference between the two of them. Because what she did is after she was overthrown by um, Mary Tudor and she was put in the tower and uh, she was tried for treason, uh, Mary was very keen that Jane would be found guilty of treason, but that she would then... Mary would then pardon her. She wanted Jane to be perceived as a pawn because she wanted people to believe that Edward VI, who was the same age as Jane, had been a pawn of the political elite, and particularly the Dudley family. But Jane was much more than that. And Mary's plans, I suppose, for Jane began to go awry very shortly after the trial, when Mary reintroduced the Catholic mass to England and Jane took the opportunity at this point to write an open, that is a public letter, to a former tutor of hers who had converted to Catholicism to condemn Mary's actions, to condemn the introduction, the reintroduction of the Mass, uh, which she described as a sort of form of satanic cannibalism, and to urge people to rise up against it. And I think that helped seal her fate when subsequently... Her father, a few weeks later, was involved in a major rebellion against Mary, uh, which very nearly saw the overthrow and death of Mary. And I suppose there's an interesting contrast with Charles there, because Charles was married to a Catholic. And although the uh, mass was not allowed generally in England, and indeed, if you refused to go to a Protestant service, you were heavily fined, Catholic priests were periodically executed for the crime of being Catholic priests, basically. Um, nevertheless, as his reign had gone on, he had um, not only allowed his wife to hear mass and foreign ambassadors, but also increasingly he allowed English subjects, his own subject, English and Scottish subjects, to attend mass in her chapels. And this was an another cause of great concern to many English Protestants, that he was letting in popery. Interestingly, in the 1630s, the middle of the 1630s, when I suppose his wife, Henrietta Maria's powers were at their height, her influence was at its height, there was a new life of, of Jane Grey with some printed, reiterating her words about the mass and, you know, how, how terrible it was. It's beyond the scope of this podcast to go into the entirety of the civil wars. Needless to say, during the 1640s, society cracked in two and the component countries in Britain, as well as Ireland, were plunged into civil war. At the end, Parliament was victorious and Charles I was accused of being a traitor to his own people and was tried as such. I asked Leander whether once the trial had been set in motion, there was any way out for Charles. I think that if he had recognised the court and been prepared to accept its verdict, he may well have survived because it was in the interest of his prosecutors that he should survive. I mean, they were, were concerned that if they executed him, it could trigger a rising in the country. It wasn't popular uh, trying the king and threatening his life. Equally, he was not only a king of Scots, which is an independent kingdom at this time, he was also the uncle of the king of France, 
He was the father-in-law, the Prince of Orange in Holland. And so there could also have been an international reaction, which is not something they wanted. If he had accepted the jurisdiction of the court, then that would, would mean that he had accepted the supremacy of the House of Commons. He would have also accepted that he did not have the last word on you know, acts of parliament, that he didn't have the power of veto. And so they could have afforded that way to keep him alive as a sort of constitutional monarch, basically, as a powerless constitutional monarch. But he, he refused to do that. What efforts did Charles make to question the authority of the court? He said that the court was illegal, first of all, because actually, well, first of all, treason in English law is, 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 is a crime against the king, and he was the king, so they couldn't try him. And secondly, they claimed that uh, Parliament was a court, but he said though it wasn't Parliament because there was no House of Lords that abolished the House of Lords. There was simply the House of Commons and there was nothing in English law which said that the House of Commons was a court. And he was right in this respect. They were sort of slightly making it up as they went along. And his point was that if you can, you know, if power can make law, then who's safe? Nobody's safe. Nobody's goods are safe. Nobody's life is safe if power is law. Turning to Lady Jane Grey, very soon things began to go wrong for her. Well, Mary decides at this point that Jane represents, I suppose, a Protestant cause and that people who've rebelled against Mary are Protestants. And as such, she needs to sort of take no more chances and uh, cut off her head. I think Jane's response is very interesting and is very like Charles's in similar circumstances because um, she's incredibly brave. And he said, you have to remind yourself she's only 16, this girl. She immediately starts looking ahead to what's going to come after her death. And she wants to be remembered as a martyr, a martyr for her religion, a martyr for her cause. And she starts making sure that, you know, that she, she's involved in creating the propaganda that will support that. And so when Mary sends a priest to see her in the hopes of sort of converting her to Catholicism and saving her soul before her execution, Jane writes down her conversation with this priest to sort of show her arguments as superior. And indeed, these arguments are revived again, as I mentioned earlier, during the reign of Charles, uh, to sort of condemn him, really, out of her words. And she also writes in this prayer book a letter to her father, in which she describes herself and her husband, Guilford Dudley, as martyrs for their religion. And she also writes a letter to her sister, also designed for publication, also designed to be preserved. Her sister's only 13, telling her sister, you too must make a stand against the mass. You too must be prepared to die for your religion, for the Protestant faith as I am. It becomes the most effective anti-Marian propaganda of Mary's reign. And here we find yet another similarity between the two monarchs. Charles I also attempts to create his own mythology. He does. He's involved in the creation of a book called the Icon Basilicae, or Royal Portrait, in which he justifies all his actions over the previous years of his reign, and particularly during the war, the beginning of the war, and in which he describes himself as a, a martyr for the Church of England, his particular vision of the Church of England, the Protestant Church of England, his brand of Protestantism, and as a martyr for the people as well. He describes himself as a martyr of the people because he is standing up for the law. And this also is enormously successful. And it literally goes to sort of print the second the sort of head, his head drops onto the scaffold and becomes a vast international bestseller. 
I asked Leander about the afterlife of the monarchs and their historical legacies. Jane is that famous uh, painting, Victorian era painting by French artist Delaroche with her dressed in white, like a kind of virgin sacrifice on the scaffold. Uh, and then there are many images of Charles from much earlier, which are from you know, the time of his, of his death with him exchanging his earthly crown for the crown of heaven. And indeed, he was proclaimed a martyr by the Church of England and was treated as such for three centuries, I think. The body of Charles I was buried in a private ceremony at Windsor Castle. The parliamentarians had banned him being buried at Westminster Cathedral. He now rests in St George's Chapel next to the coffins of Henry VIII and Jane Seymour. Lady Jane Grey was buried with her husband Guildford within the chapel at the Tower of London. There is no stone or monument to mark her grave. 